the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. I am joined again by Ian Simpkins on this Monday afternoon. Uh, if you'd like to connect with us, you can do so at Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or online at 1160hope.com. Ian, it's another week. Happy Monday. Hey, thanks, man. <laughs> I'm sure every day feels like it's not like a real weekend now that you have a newborn, right? Like, it's Yeah. Just... I mean, we don't really get weekends as pastors in general. True. And then throwing a newborn in the mix sort of... Uh amplifies that reality it all does it i had my dad my daddy daughter dance this weekend oh yeah how'd that go oh it's the best man you need to have a daughter just so you can attend daddy daughter <laughs> dances but you I'll, get all I'll dre- tell my wife good luck with that in the newborn stage you get all dressed up we went out to dinner do a nice dinner and I had one of those nice moments because we were invited to go out with my daughter some of her friends and their dads and my daughter was like dad i just want to go out with you oh and i was like oh bottle this up please yeah, bottle this up and so then we went to the dance and it was fun <laughs> the rest of the weekend was just basketball and playing with kids so all a good time well we're glad again that you're joining us here on the common good it's a show where we like to talk about lighthearted stuff but also difficult things as we've said before ian and i are both pastors and we're trying to just process life with you guys and trying to say hey not everything's easy uh sometimes there's dark stories sometimes there's good stories Sometimes things can't get all tied up in a bow. And Ian, that's a way of jumping off into a really hard story that was flying around the Internet this week. Uh, The Houston Chronicle uh, did an investigation on the Southern Baptist Convention. And basically, the title of the article says this, 20 years, 700 victims, Southern Baptist sexual abuse spreads as leaders resist reforms. And before diving into some of the details, man, when I read this and it was if your social media was like mine, uh, it was just everywhere, just yeah. everywhere, and it just breaks my heart and makes me angry. Yeah, I, I can't even. When I started reading this, it was, uh, it was just like a, it was a pit in my st- exactly yes. what you said. It was, it was, was both. It was immense sadness mm-hmm. coupled with like unbelievable anger. Yeah, like it's a very strange mix of emotions. And I, the more, the more that I just dove into the story, the more the the sadder and angrier that I got. It's a really, really intense story. It is. And for those of you who maybe didn't see it over the weekend, let me just uh, highlight some of the things that came out of this investigation. It says at least 35 church pastors, employees, and volunteers who exhibited predatory behavior were still able to find jobs at churches uh, during the past two decades. Several past presidents and prominent leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention are among those criticized by by victims for concealing or mishandling abuse claims within their own churches or seminaries. Some registered sex offenders returned to the pulpit. Uh, Many of the victims were adolescents 
who were sent explicit photos, molested, exposed to pornography, and the like. Some victims as young as three, a few were adults, and it just keeps getting worse. And like I told you, man, we're both pastors. We love the church. Uh, We want the church to be doing what it was called to do. And here you've got the Southern Baptist Convention that is— you know the biggest den- uh, Protestant denomination there is. Right. Uh, this is just a black eye. This is ugly. It hurts the kingdom. It hurts the name of Jesus. Yeah, I I, uh, I came across something Scott McKnight wrote, and uh, I just want to read a little bit if if I could. Cause yeah, I, I just think he's so wise. He said some significant voices in the SBC stood up to say that perpetrators are morally wrong and damaging the gospel and our Lord. He said fine, but that's not the point. Once again, the focus is on the SBC. The focus is on doing better. The focus is on not letting this happen again. Strategies. Of prevention are the focus. The focus ought to be on the women and the vulnerable, oh, sometimes good. young boys. The SBC wants to talk about its failure, needs to talk about the abused. It needs to turn its attention to them. If you want to focus on that failure, focus on those who have been abused, the some 700 of them. This is about women who are vulnerable to overpowering men. This is about young people, mostly women, who looked up to male leadership. It's about mostly women who... Trust in the mostly man of God uh, was turned into a nightmare of moral violence. It's about women and the collapse of confidence in the male leaders in church. It's about wondering how many other male leaders in churches like this. This is a story about what happens to the women, to the vulnerable, to the young boys who have been violated. For once, focus on them. This is a period of listening to repent, to lament, to grieve, and to weep. That's really good because... So often, whether it be the Catholic Church, now the Southern Baptist, or whatever else, the first question we start to do is, how does this not happen again? Yeah. And the answer is, it's going to happen again because of sin. The, the bigger question is, where have we uh, allowed this to happen? Because we have a cultural problem, but we have a church problem. We have a, yeah. we have a problem with this. This is a big deal, people. If you're out there being like, oh, oh, this always used to happen, or this, no, no. This is really a big deal in the largest denomination uh, in our country, our largest Protestant denomination. And, you know, you and I are both Protestant evangelicals. Uh, this right. is kind of, you know, it used to always be that we could talk about the Catholics, right? Right. Like throw it, lob it over their way. Right. Well, this is coming home right here, folks. This is coming home. And you add on all the other stuff and it, it could be real. It is not can be. It is really discouraging. Well, and I think too, the thing that is difficult to get to after we've grieved, after we've listened to victims after we've like sat and wept like i think that's we skip right over that so Mm -hmm. easily but it also can't simply be about oh we need to implement better checks and balances i I think it's way deeper than i think it's about uh some toxic theology of leadership i think in a lot of systems and structures it's it's a patriarchy that has been toxic for a while and we're just now i think realizing the depth of some of those problems i think it's um, what leads certain leaders to thrive in circumstances that run from accountability. It isn't just about like, oh, we should have your emails scanned or we should have better cameras installed. That's, right. I'm not saying don't do those things. I'm just saying there's a much more deeply embedded issue uh, that it seems like very few people are taking the time to actually talk about mm-hmm. because it either A, becomes about publicity, B, making sure that our hands are clean, uh, or C, running right to solution-based yeah. conversations when it really, I think it needs to begin with like letting our heart break for these things mm-hmm. and then drilling beneath the surface to say, why does this keep happening? It can't just be about technology or checks and balances or something I think way yeah. more profound going on. It's the old fruit to root issue or root to fruit. Like there's the fruit issue is like, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? How right. do we... How do we clean this up? No, there's a root issue. It's a, it's a fundamental sin issue that we like to think the church doesn't have, but clearly uh, it does. And, and, right. 
And it's just so hard because um, you, it could become really discouraging to yeah. look at the church as a whole and be like, look at what it does. And, you know, I don't want to be overly optimistic, but just I, I do want to point out Jesus is still in charge and still good. Yeah. <laughs> and and that, that the church has to do a lot of hard work here and kind of dig out the roots that are causing this. Yep. And, and good people need to stand up uh, for, um, for what is right. And, and folks, what is right in this? Sexual abuse is a sin against God and a crime against civil authority yeah. and civil order. And we have to call it that and get rid of the people who are breaking that. Well, and I think it's important, too, to talk about uh, some of our obsession with power. I think yes. that's, that's what's hard for us, I think, to really grapple with is so much of our uh, evangelicalism is wrapped up in some sort of obsession with power. And Jesus mm-hmm. speaks a lot uh, to an infatuation with power and what that does to the human heart and how we as Christ followers are to respond differently. I think if we don't start talking about um, what that actually does to us in yes. our churches, in our cultures, in our societies, um, like we're, we're never going to heal from this. Absolutely. Well, I think this is such an important topic. Let's carry this over. And in fact, uh, when we cut, coming up next, we are going to talk to a man by the name of uh, Boz Chavidjan. And Boz... Uh, started, he's the founder and ex- executive director of GRACE, which stands for Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. He's going to have a lot of great things to say. Might not be easy things, uh, but hopefully healing things that says, how do we, how should we think about this and what are the best next steps forward? Well, you're listening to The Common Good on, Ale- on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up next, we'll talk to Boz Chavijan on The Common Good on AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined again by my co-host, Ian Simpkins. And uh, before the break, last segment, what we talked about was that difficult article that came out of the Houston Chronicle this week, a really expansive article, and it's basically titled this, 20 Years, 700 Victims, Southern Baptist Sexual Abuse Spreads as Leaders Resist Reforms. And, and Ian and I... Uh, we wrestled with this, just our sadness as pastors and um, just kind of the depth of sin. And um, But we, Ian, we both know that we are not really uh, <laughs> qualified to really talk on this very well. It's true. Yeah. Uh, and I couldn't think of anybody more qualified to talk on this than, than the guest that we are bringing on right now. And his name is Boz, uh, Boz Chavijan. Uh, Boz is a former child abuse prosecutor who is currently a professor of law at Liberty University School of Law. He's the founder and executive director of Grace. And what Grace is, is an organization that educates and equips faith communities to correctly respond to sexual abuse disclosures while also providing practical guidance on how to protect children and serve survivors. So, Boz, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Let's just start right with the story. When you read this story over the weekend or whenever it was that you read it, uh, what was your just your initial reaction to it? Uh, probably a mixture of a grief mm. um, that uh, that this is a reality inside mm-hmm. the church, yeah. um, a uh, and also combined with an anger uh, that those who profess to uh, follow Jesus and to call Him Lord uh, would treat His children. Uh, in such a way. Yeah. Uh, it's just, uh, it's tragic. Yeah, gr- grief and anger is exactly the two words that I was just using to describe my own heart and posture, not not just simply because of this story, but exactly what you were saying, that this is 
now at a systemic level, uh, apparently something that's, I think, way bigger of an issue than any of us ever anticipated. Can, can you help speak a little bit to some of the, the systems and, and patterns, the, like, behind this, the, the deep-rooted stuff that's leading to this kind of behavior, these types of problems over and over and over again? What's, this, what's the thing beneath the surface that has allowed stuff like this to continue to happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, first I would say is that, you know, I've been dealing with these types of issues since, uh, you know, the probably the late 90s. Mm, and wow. so as, as tragic and as, as grief stricken as I was reading this piece, uh, I sadly have to tell you, I wasn't surprised. Mm. Uh, we've been dealing with this type of stuff inside the Protestant world for that time. Most of the work Grace does is inside Protestant churches. So while we've spent many decades pointing to our Catholic brothers and sisters, and, and rightly so in many uh, circumstances, right. uh, of the horrors that have gone on there, uh, we have oftentimes not taken the time to examine our own culture and our own churches and to realize that uh, the abuse of children and vulnerable people is no less prevalent uh, in our world than it is in the Catholic world. And, and again, it's not a matter of comparing. One child is too many. Right. But... Uh, we have to, as Protestants, wake up to this uh, very real nightmare that's amongst us, and as you said, is systemic, and begin yeah. examining what is it about our communities, what is it about our churches, mm. the very churches that profess to to follow and love Jesus, the one who, who spoke great value about children in a time when, when children were considered just a little bit valued above slaves, yeah. mm. what has happened what in the world has happened? Yeah. Uh, how did we get here? And what do we do to return to uh, a church that earnestly reflects the beauty uh, and protection of Jesus for especially the most vulnerable? And so I think that's a that's a long conversation. We we as an organization uh, have focused the last 15 years on not only going in and, and doing training and education uh, with churches and organizations, long term training, not just going for a weekend and say, okay, we got we got our child protection stuff done. And we're right. talking months and months of training that require wow. cultural transformations in our churches. I mean, at the end of the day, we should all be able to say humbly that our churches, that the very DNA of each of our churches is made up of, uh, of those who want to be vigilant and proactive in protecting both children and other vulnerable people. And, uh, and so we do that. It's more, than just a, it's more than just a class. It's more than just a, you know, taking a, a quiz online. It's, it, it really requires, we go in, we assign each church a certification specialist that walks them through a, a months-long process that educates Every demographic of the church, from leadership all the way down to children. Wow. Um, but we also, you know, we also have to begin, you know, examining uh, what is it about the systems we have in place. Mm-hmm. You know, what is it about churches that place, in my opinion, uh, such a great value on leaders and, quite frankly, men, mm-hmm. to the extent where those who are not leaders and those who are not men are are really on the outside peripheral of value and and power and right. and, and, and and influence. And so so when somebody steps forward and discloses perhaps an well some discloses a, abuse um, if it's the associate pastor who's been there for 15 years that everybody loves, mm. we get a much different response from leadership than if it's the janitor that was hired 2 weeks earlier. Right. Right. And and that's the problem. We are oftentimes responding to these disclosures based upon who the alleged offender is wow. and not based upon the horror of the very possibility 
that what's been disclosed is true. Because I think we often, I think it's human nature, we gravitate towards the narratives we're more comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. And when you're already... Um, when you're already engaged in a narrative that places greater value and influence upon leadership and men, um, uh, people who are not do not fall into one of those categories are uh, are just about every time going to walk away at a loss. Mm, that's powerful, and, and we uh, we can't do that. Uh, so Ian and I are both pastors, and uh, we are both also fathers. And uh, part of what mm-hmm. Grace does, it says, it provides practical guidance on how to protect children and serve survivors. If you were, uh, what is one or two things that you would tell us as pastors who, so that we're not naive, but also to protect the children, our own children, and also the children of our church, what do you go in and tell maybe one or two things that you would, uh, words of advice you'd give to churches? Yeah, it's, and it's, I hate, I'll answer that. I'm always careful answering it because it's, it's, it's too, there's not one or two things I can say. Gotcha. Um, right. It's much more, it's much more comprehensive than that. But I would say this as pastors. Ask yourselves, do we have a child protection policy? Right. Um, who, who developed it? Where did we get it from? Has it made its way into the very heart of who we are as an organization? Are we following it? Do we spend uh, time every, uh, you know, maybe once a year reviewing it? Do we have experts coming in to review it? And the, not lawyers, experts, experts who are, who are more concerned about the children and vulnerable people in your church than they are the institution. Yes. And, and fine-tuning and improving it. Um, ask yourselves those questions, because I think a lot of churches, either they don't have those policies, or they cut and paste a policy from somebody else, mm. uh, or they were sort of handed one by their insurance carrier. Yeah. And that, that doesn't do it. Uh, and so when I, I tell parents when they ask that same question, I say, go ask the church that you're visiting or the church you're members, can I see the policy? And I said, the response to that question will, will speak volumes. Because if you get a response by somebody that either minimizes the question or gets maybe a little irritated at the question, that's not a good sign. Mm. <laughs> um, and and the second is to be teachable. As pastors, you all have been given certain tools in your toolbox in seminary and based on life experience. Uh, but there are a lot of tools that you don't have in your toolbox. Right. And understanding and identifying abuse and knowing how to properly respond to it and how to best serve survivors are usually not tools that are going to be found in your toolbox. And mm-hmm. so look for those who have the experience and expertise who can teach you that. One place to, to go are the known survivors inside your church. Yes. We need to start inviting them to the table and listening and learning from them. Not just to not to patronize them and make them feel right. No, we, we have a lot to teach us, yes. and I think sometimes we, we just aren't listening. Um, and so those are just a couple I appreciate that. thoughts that Bob, come to mind. That's brilliant, and that's exactly what I was going to ask, too, because as you mentioned, this is a systemic issue. It has a lot to do with authority and power, particularly uh, male authority and power, unfortunately. And, and that is exactly what I wanted to ask you. How do, we, how do we listen better? Like Brian and I are both sitting at this table now. We recognize that we're we're white male pastors, and as easy it is for us to jump to solutions, I think you hit the nail on the head that we need to assume a posture of listening. But what are some ways that we can all do that, regardless of what church or denomination we're at? How do how do we listen better uh, without doing what you were saying, patronizing or belittling um, or exploiting in any way? How, how do we assume yeah. a posture of learners yeah, in this really point. complicated question? I think we first have to come to a point of realizing that this is a, this is a real. This is a real issue, and this is a this is a central. This is to, this issue goes to the core of who we are as Christians and who we are as a church. Um, if we just look at it as just another issue of the church, we're completely missing the boat. Yeah. Once we get to that point, we go. This goes to the very heart of who we see God as who God is. Yeah. 
and and his, the, the very nature and character of God, we're going to take a step back and go, my goodness, yeah, we, we have a lot of learning to do. And so how do we do that? And, and you know, I, like I said, I think it's being teachable. I think, uh, you know, guys, and I, I've been in church leadership, we're not real teachable. We get into these leadership positions, we tend to think that we have a little bit smarter than everybody mm-hmm. else. Uh, we might get into some of the congregation members, but we're the leaders. And, and it becomes sort of a good old boy club, whether we want to call it that or not. And so somebody from the outside of that club, yes, they maybe will speak into us, but we're just not going to oftentimes place as much value on what they have to say as we should. And so, you know, my recommendation is, yeah, invite people to the table, invite women to the table, invite survivors to the table, and and, and invite experts to the table, and just listen and learn and mm. take notes and ask questions. Uh, I think that that the more we can listen and learn from, from those demographics, uh, talk to people who have been through a church situation where the church failed in its response, find out what, mm. what were aspects of, of the church response that, that was, were, were failures, and, and how did it impact them spiritually, emotionally. Um, learn, those are the ways we're going to learn, yeah. um, and, and those voices are, we've got to place those voices that are no less valuable than our own. In fact, quite mm. frankly, I think they're more valuable than our own, and we need to we need to recognize that and just accept that. Mm. Well, Boss, thank God, you. God has placed those people in our churches yeah. and in our communities for such a time as this, and we we need to grab a hold of that that opportunity that He's given to us. Oh, that's a great word, Boss. Thank you so much for your time, helping us unpack and kind of process this difficult story. Again, you've been listening to Boss uh, Chavijan, and we are grateful for your time. Thank you. Have a great day. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, uh, joined again by my co-host Ian Simpkins. Uh, you can follow us at Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. And you can find old shows online at 1160hope.com. And this show If you've been with us over our first month, you know that one of our goals is to help you understand what it's like to be a pastor, uh, to wrestle with things, because Ian and I are both pastors. I'm the lead pastor at Four Corners Community Church, and Ian is uh, the teaching pastor over at Community Christian Church, the Yellow Box in Naperville. Uh, So Ian, I started a church, right? And, And I'm a church planter, which has like this whole connotation to it. But when you start a church, you have these visions of being the cool church in town. Yeah. Like, this is the church that's going to, like, win the whole town over, and there's going to be this buzz going around. Everybody's going to want to be a part of this church. We're going to be, you know, people are going to be searching us out, and the, the whole community is going to be different because we exist. Um, and, and now that I've been at it, our church just turned nine last nice. week. Nice. And now that I've been at it for, like, nine years, it's like, okay— we're not, we're going to be the cool church, nor is that the goal, Yeah, but it's more about like being the faithful body of Christ that is like caring for the sick and, and loving on the people and helping people understand Jesus. Um, do you resonate with that? Someone who's been a pastor in big and small churches and all across the board? Yeah. I never really wanted to be cool. Never really seemed to be the goal, probably because I was never cool. Like, <laughs> like, I like I to mean, think I was, I, but I don't think I was. I think you were probably way cooler than I was nope. though. I think I learned early on. Ian, you're just not cool. So I think early into my ministry career, I was like, okay, well, that's never that's never going to happen. And what you you know what you mentioned about impact, I think everyone 
in ministry to some desire, some some level desires that kind of impact mm-hmm. you know, to really, um, you know, to change marriages and communities and people and and to have that kind of have that kind of impact. I think is is worthwhile. But the, the coolness, I don't I don't know. I always there's always some level of suspicion for me when things seem too cool or too mm. slick. And that's not just in churches. That's just in general. You know, yes. I've worked with different musicians and artists, and sometimes you get up close and they're really humble and they're really gracious and they're really, you know, just everyday people. Yeah. And other times you meet them and you're like, oh man, you, they're just, <laughs> it's hard to even have a conversation because it's just so uber slick and cool. Yep. And I don't know. It, it's a little hokey, but I always try to come back to like, what did the, what did the ministry of Jesus look like in practicality? Yeah. There was not a whole lot that was cool or slick about it. In fact, I think that's the thing that people are really looking for. They're not looking for the the most well-produced Sunday morning experience. That's not, I'm not saying don't do excellent work on Sundays. Right. But, you know, I meet with new people every single week. Not one of them has told me the number one thing I'm looking for is really, like, slick, cool, polished production. Yeah. Ever. Now, that's, you know, we have a production team that, like, pours their heart and soul into that, and that's an art form for them as well. So there's there's definitely two sides to that coin, but I think, man, when cool is our goal— when cool is the target, that lacks that lacks some substance. Yeah. You may be cool in the process. I you know I think that there's there's all sorts of celebrity pastors that you know for us maybe here in the burbs sometimes it's easy to laugh at. But when you really get to know them, like I think that might actually be who you are. I think you actually are just cool. So it <laughs> makes sense that your church would look like that. I'm fine with that. I really am. I just think to to try and fit a square peg into a round hole. And so often I meet people who have faithfully loved their community for decades who feel like they're failures. Yeah, because their church doesn't. You know, isn't slick enough or as cool as they they'd hoped it would be. You know, yeah, and that's where it gets hard as a pastor sometimes. Like you always feel like your church should be bigger, your church should be doing more. Right. Uh, that that some of the guys that I know, some of the pastors that I know who are the m- most effective, I would say, are in some really small churches. Right. And they're just grinding, and they're just they're preaching the gospel every week, and they're loving on their people, and they're showing up to hospitals. Um, but in the eyes of like our culture, our Christian culture, they're like not successful. Mm. And it's something wrong with that. And I think for those of you out there who aren't pastors, it really does raise the question, like, what is the what are you looking for? Right. Like, what are you looking for in a church? And um, as a pastor, it could be really hard to not be like, there's some sort of arbitrary bar that I'm trying to clear right, right, when right. it's not even a biblical bar. Which, and I, I'm not opposed to preferences. You know, no. certainly have people say, I don't, I really don't like that you guys have drummers. I'm like that's totally fine. There's plenty of churches that don't have drums. That's I don't think that's a a point of theology necessary necessarily. But I think right. it's I think that's perfectly acceptable to say this is too big for me or this is too small for me or um, you know we don't really like the lay like that. Those are totally valid reasons. I think there is something to be said, and I think we're seeing a trend with millennials in particular that people are not driving an hour and a half to go to their church anymore because they know that they're passing eighty like healthy, yeah. <laughs> stable like God-loving communities, and to to do the hard work of investing. Because it's never going to be, there's no such thing as a perfect church. And I think sometimes, I'll, I often tell couples, the whole church shopping thing to me sounds terrible, because I've never had to do it. You know, I've only worked in churches in my adult life. Me and too. The idea of, like, attending a service and then going to your car afterwards, and you and your spouse or whatever, like, weighing the pros and cons. Like critiquing like, it as you uh, go, yeah. That's That just sounds awful. So it's, it, it, to me, in a... It's. I understand wh- why we've gotten to that point uh, in our culture, and I think a lot of ways our spaces are set up to make it, you know, subtly communicate that we're here to entertain you, yeah. which we've talked about before. We're not. Um, that's not the goal of the church, and so I think 
you know, people don't talk about other people's families. Like, oh, you really got to go to this. They're really slick and cool. You're like, no, no that's that, <laughs> yeah. that family just loves people really well. Their doors are always open. I think the more that the church can take its cues from what a, what a family looks like, I think the better. I've only critiqued the church once because, like you, I've been I, I've always worked in churches. That was this summer at sabbatical when my daughter and I went to your church, ah. and I heard you <laughs> preach, and I got to show up, and I sat in the back, my arms crossed, and just said, "Oh, what did they do that way? Why is he? Why, what did he do that for? What was your uh, biggest contention? What was my biggest contention? Did you have one? That you walked away like I would never have done that. Not at all. It's so funny because people have probably picked this up if they've been listening to our show. You and I pastor very different churches. Yeah, for sure. And that's what's fun about this. Like we're in a warehouse. We're nine years old, and we just we're you know a Sunday morning. There's gonna be two hundred people there. Right. Uh, and you're in a multi-campus church. You're at the hub. You're at the mothership, if you will. But it's <laughs> it's you know I don't know Sunday morning, a couple thousand. Yeah. Yeah. And so. We just live in different universes. Yeah. And so, you know, to come to your church after knowing mine, it, it was a little overwhelming just mm. to be in the lobby and have, like, all these people everywhere. Right, right, right. Um, like, uh, our lobby is, like, the size of this radio studio we're sitting in right now. It's You can't <laughs> see. It's not very spacious. And so, uh, but I loved it, man. It was fun to, it was fun to hear you, and it was fun to, Thanks, um, you know, like to be able to sit back and be like, oh, I, yeah, no, if I were preaching this sermon, I would do that. Right. But every church is different. Like you guys sing songs that either you've written or you yeah. also just, they're part of your culture and I didn't right. know them. So I was like, oh, okay, don't know these. And, but it was good. It was a good experience. How's that sound? Yeah. That, that's always fascinating to me too. I, I love meeting people who, who are there for the very first time because they'll see stuff that we don't see. Yeah. You know, I've only been there three years and there's already, it's like that ugly couch in the basement that you, you know, it's just the couch and yeah. you can kind of forget that it's there until somebody comes to your house. You're like, whoa, what is the deal with that couch? It's yeah. really, really helpful, I think, uh, to engage with people who are brand spanking new, who have like exactly what you were saying. Where, where do those songs come from? I don't know yep, why your yep. lobby set up this way like that. For me as a pastor is really helpful because it all, it all, it comes down to people. Do you know what's the most interesting thing when we visited your church? This has nothing to do with your church. It's <laughs> had to do with not being the pastor. Like the, People need to understand, like, as pastors, we don't ever really just visit churches and just go. So right. me and my daughter went, uh, and I said, hey, we'll go out to lunch in downtown Naperville afterwards. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, and like we do at our church, we encur- you guys encourage the visitors, hey, stay after. We would love to meet you. Right. Come on up to this spot. We do that at our church. Please go to this area. Right. We'd love to shake your hand. We have a gift for you. Uh, I did not consider for one second going where you asked me to go. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to lunch. And we left, and I told my daughter that was really uh, interesting because I get mad when people don't stay after when right. they run, and it was all I just wanted to go to lunch. Yep, it was very interesting. I so, totally get that. I'm gonna need you to come secret shopper my church one of these to. times. <laughs> I'm gonna show up in a mask or something. That would be awesome. <laughs> well, anyway, you're listening to the Common Good on AM 1160. My name is Brian Fromm, along with Ian Simpkins. Coming up next, we're going to talk about a missionary by the name of Andrew Brunson. You may remember that name. He was held prisoner in Turkey for two years for his faith, and now he's saying he wants to go back. Is that a good idea, or is that foolish? That's up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. I'm the lead pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, Illinois. I'm joined again as I am every day, by Ian Simpkins. Ian is the teaching pastor at Community Christian Church at the Yellow Box in Naperville, Illinois. Uh, one of the, our goals for this show is to, uh, is to throw things your way and have you wrestle with us. Uh, and so you could do that at 
The Common Good Radio Show at Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, and Ian, I came across a story this weekend about a pastor by the name of Andrew Brunson. Did you remember that name? I do. Yeah, so Andrew Brunson was a missionary in Turkey, and he was held in prison for two years, and not like a nice prison. <laughs> like, <laughs> he was in just a bad prison situation. Not like a white-collar situation. Not at all. And it was completely unfair. He was being used, really, as a political pawn. Uh, and you probably, if you're on Facebook or Twitter, you probably saw lots of posts about people, please pray for Pastor Brunson. You, he wants to be home with his wife and his family. But he'd been in Turkey for, for years right. um, trying to share the gospel and uh, now Pastor Brunson recently said, uh, he shared it, said this past Wednesday, that now that he's home in North Carolina, he wants to go back to Turkey. <sighs> and he wants to go back as a missionary. This is a guy, he's a husband, he's a father. Uh, he's just done two years of just unbelievable, like, like this is like even worse than the worst prisons here, like beatings and all sorts of stuff for his right. faith. And now he wants to go back. And if I'm 100% honest, I don't know how I feel about this story. Yeah, is that a good idea? That's the question we're wrestling with here, man. What do you think? What do you think? <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I'm not a missionary myself, and I do recognize that anyone with, I mean, don't, there's probably a whole other discussion here about the way that we do missions, particularly in the West. Um, that's maybe <laughs> a story for a later time. But mm-hmm. I do understand that there is like a, like a deep burning passion to to do this thing. So it's yep. a little bit difficult for me to commiserate entirely because I think, you know, he and I are, are wired differently. We have different passions. Mm-hmm. Although I did, when I was younger, I did think that I was going to be a missionary. That, okay. you, know, you and I both grew up in CMA churches, mm-hmm. and that was something that always really fascinated me. But I, I do wonder, not particularly having our second kid now and thinking through about, like, family dynamics. On the other side, though, I do know that sometimes that can be... That can be a reason for uh, for not boldly stepping into what we need to step into, mm-hmm. right? When we're thinking about our 401ks and our mortgages, right? Like we can use that rationale for a lot of things locally, even even if it's not heading back to the country that imprisoned us. And I think, I don't know, that's that's a balancing act that I, I don't know that I know, I know how to do well. I don't know him personally. Uh, I'd love to know what his wife is thinking. Yeah. Like, is she standing by him? Is she supporting this decision? Is she, you know, what What? What are those? I'd love to be a fly on the wall of that conversation. <laughs> it probably went like this. You want to do what? <laughs> yeah, right, right. No kidding. No kidding. I do, man. I'm like, I'm with you, right with you on this one. I really struggle. I go back and forth on this because we read the early church, and what do these guys do? We're going to go boldly into the most dangerous areas, right. and we are going to, um, even if it costs us our life, with most of them, it did cost them their life, but we just feel this compelling a call to take the gospel into areas that most desperately need it. And obviously Turkey is one of those places that needs it. It, right. is, uh, it is not a very Christianized area, if you will. On the other hand, you know, he's got a family right. and he's got a wife. And and also to go back is going to be an immediate spotlight. Yep. People know who this guy is. The authorities know who he is. And so, you know, what is that going to do for the gospel? I don't know. I'm with you. I wrestle with this one. Do you think that boldness is always godly? Do I think boldness? I just shook my head at you, like forgetting we're on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> I was having a conversation. Yeah, because I, I, I wonder sometimes because, you know, we talked, to, I think it was last week, about being raised in a tradition that would teach us to take clipboards to mm. malls or I, you got to go to the beach. I went to a mall to to and beach. you would just walk up to people and say, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? 
And like deep in my bones, I always hated doing that. Yep. But for a long time, really believed that the reason I hated doing that was because I wasn't a good Christian. I yeah. lacked courage and boldness. And so for me, the goal for many years became to be more bold. On the other hand, I know that fully adult Ian Simpkins has at times steered away from stuff that I, I should have said mm. because I was being a coward. And I just chalked it up to being wise or being discerning. You know, we have different words now for not doing this thing that we yes. like deep in our gut know that we're supposed to. So with this story, I wonder, is is boldness always godly or can we sometimes be like bold with ill-informed data? Like, can we sometimes be courageous in ways that aren't God honoring? And so do we sometimes, I think, hyper celebrate, you know, this quote unquote stepping out in faith? Like, oh, what if right now in the season God was asking you, to like hit pause, like pump the brakes for a little bit. I don't feel like we celebrate that nearly as much, and we sell we you know we celebrate much more easily, much more readily. They're like, yeah, go get them, man! Yep, like you're yep. you're doing it, and I, and I, I don't know the the like grandpa on me wants to pause and ask, like, is that the wisest yeah. thing to be doing? And then I have to recognize my own cowardice, and you know that's wrapped up in that. Maybe the the recipe is boldness mixed with wisdom. <laughs> Maybe. But how do you get those? How do you get those? Like yeah. I do know when you first brought up boldness, is boldness always good? A lot of people, you know, we all know people who are just jerks in the name of boldness. <laughs> yeah, right, they're right. just they're pushy and they're jerk. I'm being bold for the gospel. No, you're just being a bad person. <laughs> you're just being a jerk. Uh, but also, like it also makes me think of um, it was Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham gets near the end of his life and he says. Uh, Looking back, like Billy Graham's as bold as they came. Yeah, like he was in stadiums and out on the street. He's just preaching the gospel. When when we have got like a top five most bold Christian list, but Billy Graham's probably near the top of that list. Yeah, uh, Billy Graham near the end of his life said, "I wish I had taken some seasons just to read my Bible and pray. Wow, and not always have to be out speaking and not always have to do." So it does raise the question of what is this boldness? Because there is wisdom to it. Yeah. Like if him going back is going to be immediate imprisonment, or we talked about that missionary story uh, last week or two weeks ago where, you know, the guy took his kayak into the unreached people group and immediately got speared. I don't know. Is that, is that bold and worthy of being celebrated or is that foolish and worthy of being learned from and not done again? Right. I think what you and I are getting at is that's a pretty fine line. It really is. I, I think that there was a, Oh, I forgot what his name was, but he said, Show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. Mm. As if to say, like, there's going to be times in our ministry where we're going to be tempted, you know, to, to kind of hide that away, to not, and, you know, whether that's something that we're working on or something that we're, um, we're unsure of, like, sh- you know, show that. But when you're really tempted to, to show off, to mm. be braggadocious, right, maybe in those seasons, maybe it's a time to, to actually, like, shy away a little bit more, to, to fight that urge to be the center of attention. And I think... You know exactly what you touched on too. So so often on, online, we we hear people who will say things that I, I even at the end of the day agree with their conclusion, but it's done it's done so in such a brash way. Like how how can we agree on the same conclusion, but your methodology is so repulsive that even though I agree with you, I want to distance myself from you. You know what <laughs> I, I mean? Like I want to disagree with you, <laughs> right, right. even though I'm in my head I do agree, but it's often. You can be right in the wrong way, I think. And I think in the same way, you can be bold in the wrong way as well. And I think that that's why it's so important to discern in the context of community. And maybe, yeah, with that, and think about the early church, the disciples, they went back, Peter and John, they went back to the group and said, please pray for boldness. And to me, that's a prayer for the correct kind of boldness. And so, you know, I'm sure this guy has people praying around him. I don't know if if I would, cards on the table, if he were sitting here right now, I'd probably say that's a bad idea, man. Yeah. 
like maybe help train some missionaries, maybe let things settle down a little bit. But that could be my lack of boldness and faith. <laughs> well, the other thing that the early church prayed for, coupled with that boldness, was signs and wonders. Yeah. Was oh. God, make, make your presence so massively clear in our midst that there's no doubt that what you're leading us towards is, is from you. And I think maybe there's something to that, to being to pairing those two prayers together, like make us bold, mm. but also like blow our minds. I like do stuff that we can never actually fabricate on our own really so that good. there's no shadow of a doubt. Like, okay, you're leading me in this direction. It's not just my own ego getting in the way. Mm. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the National Prayer Breakfast and specifically the words from the keynote speaker, Gary Haugen. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm alongside Ian Simpkins. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show or online at 1160hope.com. Well, Ian, this past week was the annual multi-faith breakfast called uh, the, the National Prayer Breakfast. Uh, and so this happens every year in Washington, D.C., where lawmakers and religious leaders from about 70 countries gather uh, it's been happening since every president, since uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower first organized it in 1953. And the premise behind it is this, that we need to be gathering people together to be praying for our country and to be praying for our leaders. And uh, that part of it I enjoy. I don't know. Something about it makes me a little <laughs> uncomfortable, but uh, thoughts in general about the National Prayer Breakfast. I mean, you had me at breakfast. <laughs> what if they're just Egg McMuffins <laughs> everywhere? <laughs> I'm from a family of nine people, man. My ears always perk up when I hear breakfast. Now, nah, you kind of you kind of baited me there a little bit. You're like, "Oh, I like the I prayer part of it," which I, I obviously do too. I've uh, I've actually spoken at prayer breakfasts before. Yeah. Um, some of the types of things I I I do enjoy the vision of bringing people together for the purpose of prayer. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think, uh, and we've touched on this a number of different ways. So much of our like always go culture. I think uh, needs like a healthy dose of like now let's let's just hit pause for a second let's be a people truly of prayer. Yes. But the the whole thing and I don't know if it's always been like this or if I'm just getting older and cynical. Like it's starting to feel a little more contrived. Yeah. Year after it, it feels a little bit like the White House Correspondents Dinner to me. It's sort of a photo op, sort of a who's who mm-hmm. of um, this particular you know demographic, which. Again, isn't bad. No. I get you know to have people together, and I'm not knocking photo ops. I just I sometimes wonder, like this is a much smaller example. But anytime I hear someone say, like if we're talking about a, a service on a Sunday, someone will say, um, okay, and then we'll pray to transition. Yes, and I'll say, no, no, we're not praying to transition. If you want to also get the musician on stage while we pray, that's fine. Yeah, but we're not praying for this transition to happen. In the same way, I think that sometimes the prayer becomes like the entry point to like a bigger yeah. like pseudo political type of this is a maybe hurrah. maybe you could say it's more national than it is prayer <laughs> yeah and i'm not judging the specific like 
heart postures of everyone gathered, yep. obviously. That's just sort of my sense from a distance. There's going to come a day where the common good is probably up on that stage. So, <laughs> <laughs> Wow. We're going to be there. So, uh, But the, the keynote speaker was a guy by the name of Gary Haugen. Gary Haugen is the yep. CEO and founder of International Justice Mission. If you don't know him, Google him. It is one of the most impressive people in our country. Uh, doing work specifically fighting modern slavery um, and just he's been given the highest honor given by the U.S. government for his anti-slavery slavery leadership. That's what the International Justice Mission does. You should really Google it if you don't know of him. A super impressive guy. And so that made me feel good that he was the keynote speaker. That said something about the organizer saying, no, we want to kind of have a nonpartisan person who's really doing great work for Jesus. And I was just so I was personally um, just really encouraged by his words and yeah. really challenged. So we want you to hear those words, and then we're going to talk about, about them in a minute. This is Gary Haugen at the National Prayer Breakfast. The ancient wisdom of God encourages us with a clear path to how he heals a nation and builds his kingdom. We should not grow weary in doing good, the good we know to do, because in the end, an all-good and almighty God has the final say. But at the same time, we should not grow weary in humbly seeking what is right. For you and I are not all good. And we are surely missing what is right if we do not pause to tremble. Finally, when we all agree on good that needs doing, we should just do it. Even in this divided era, there is good we all should agree. There's good that we all agree should be done. To address criminal justice reform, the opioid crisis, a broken foster care system. And we should just do it. I just love that call to just do it. Yeah. His call is like, hey, there is good that needs to be done that, that transcends partisan politics. And he, I think he was trying to call these leaders out and just be like, hey, let's figure out what are the good things that we all agree on and let's do them. Could you call that the common good? <laughs> <laughs> I, we could. We could. <laughs> I, I like him a lot, and I, I like IJM a lot, and, and again, there's no perfect organization, but I think what he's been able to do, what they've been able to do to transcend party politics uh, has been remarkable, and I think that that's not just a um, – that's not just good social skills. I think that they're, they're touching on something that at the core of what it means to be human, like he says later – there's an estimated 40 million people currently enslaved around the world. That is unbelievable. I can't get my mind around four that. Four zero, seventy percent, more than seventy percent of them are female, and one in four of them is a child. Like mm. I, I don't care how you voted or what religiosity tribe you say that you're a part of or not a part of. Like that's the kind of thing that we step back and say that's just not good. That's not as it should be. And I think that they're doing incredible work, not just to like rally people around ideas and causes, mm. but to actually mobilize people to make differences in their communities around the world and i think that that's the kind of stuff that I, i'd love to hear more of because i think we it's so needed in such a divided time yeah washington dc it's such like you said everything's about scoring points and winning yeah right right everything's about being right which uh, is such a tired narrative isn't it, it? Like, really, i'm so think, tired of that i think we all feel tired of it and don't necessarily see a way out right now you see these the democrats are now putting up their their um everyone's kind of coming out to run against trump and you've got trump and you're we can all see what's going to happen and what the from now to 2020 is going to be like yep and it's not going to be fun and that's why i wanted to play the gary haugen stuff because he says guys there are things that are just we, we need to realize that there there are things that just need to get done that are just right and let's just do those things yep. let's commit to being uh, servants and let's commit to prayer you know backing up in the prayer breakfast it's a commitment to prayer 
Like, I don't know. How often do we pray for our country? Yeah. How often do I pray for the leaders that I like and don't like? I'm going to raise my hand and, and say zero. I don't spend much time praying that way. Yeah, I had a mentor ask me years ago. He said, um, do you spend half as much time praying for the people that drive you crazy as you do criticizing them? Like, really thinking through time allotted. Maybe He maybe even said enemy, and I don't, I don't tend to think in terms of enemy. But right. he said, the people that you're often criticizing, whether that's people inside or outside the church, the people... That from a distance or up close, you, you seem intent on complaining about or dismantling behind their back. Do you even spend half that time praying for them? Mm. And the answer more often than not throughout my adult life has been no. You're like, that would be a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which was sort of his point, but yes. that's that's been a question that's always been so convicting. Like this politician or this pastor or this blah, 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 that I, it's so easy for us. And, you know, again, we're on a radio show it's easy for us even in a booth to throw stones from where we sit but like am i praying for these people am i praying for my leaders that doesn't mean that doesn't dismiss speaking truth to power i think sometimes we say oh we'll just pray for your leader that doesn't mean that sometimes like horrific things are being done particularly in the name of jesus that we need to stand against those can both coexist like one's not an excuse to not do the other but that is that's really convicting am i praying am i the common good the good around me um, regardless of who's leading that that charge, if it's if it's something that needs to be done in the world, am I willing to say, all right, I don't know that I necessarily agree with you or your mission, but yeah. like this needs to be done, and I'm in. I think it, I want to challenge people with how this has challenged me. Like, hey, in the words of Gary Haugen, if you see good that needs to be done, do it, do it, do it, uh, regardless of if it's coming from a Democrat or a Republican yeah. or people you like or don't like, just do what's good. And I think the bigger one here is pray. Like the that's biblical. Yeah, <laughs> Pray right. for your leaders, and uh, maybe so is doing the good that you see too. Absolutely, to <laughs> good point. Good point. I'm like, oh, this is the biblical one. Right. <laughs> right, doing the good you see in front of you and pray. I think if Christians were to take that attitude, it would make a huge, huge difference in the world. Well, coming up next on the common good, we're going to ask this question: What do you do when you stop liking your church? Oh boy. We're going to wrestle with that one coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined again by my co-host Ian Simpkins. Ian, it's a Monday. Yep. It is a Monday. <laughs> I for, you know what I watched over the weekend? Did you watch any of the Grammys last night? Not, not a lick. Not a lick. I felt so old. Really? Every time I watch things like the Grammys or the Academy Awards, I feel every year I feel more and more distant from like mainstream, you know, I'm, now, I'm, now I'm that guy who's like, oh, those kids, they listen to this music. <laughs> well, with their hippity hop and their <laughs> death metal. You got Southern somehow in that depiction too. Sorry about that. <laughs> it was wild though. I was just like, I don't know any of these songs or any of these people, nor do they care that I do. You didn't know well, any. You knew some, I knew though. Some. Okay. I knew some, but who's this Gaga person? <laughs> you know who Lady Gaga I'm is. I'm kidding. I know. <laughs> I know. But every now and then, like, an older person would come out. I'm like, yes, I love this song. <laughs> so I, my people. I don't know. Just hitting that stage of life now. Like, oh, okay. We're older now. You seem okay with it, though. I, I am increasingly okay with it. I'm, I'm happy being older. I know there were a couple of artists that were um, offered the chance to perform and or host that turned it down. Because of the Grammys' uh, lack of diversity, is that right? Yeah, oh, particularly the uh, the decision making board. So I, I, a number of artists didn't even show up. No, artists that won awards that weren't even there. Huh? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Well, that has much to do about nothing. Just that I felt old <laughs> last night watching the Grammys. Uh, 
as we've been talking about on The Common Good, you and I are both pastors, and we like to, to uh, kind of wrestle with people. What's the point of church? How do you live out your Christian faith? All sorts of things over all sorts of topics. Uh, and with that in mind, we came across uh, an interesting article that was titled this, What Do You Do When You Stop Liking Your Church? Yeah. Uh, and we were like, are they speaking to pastors or parishioners? Here? Right, right. <laughs> They're speaking to parishioners. What do you do when you sit in church uh, on a Sunday morning or you're there for a year and you're like, man, I don't like the vibe of this place. It's kind of old fashioned or it's just, and you just, you just don't like the church. Yeah. And this uh, pastor wrote this article trying to answer that question. But how would you tackle that? If someone came up to you and said, ah, our church is okay. I don't really like it. So I'm thinking about going somewhere else. What would you, what would you talk to them about? You know, I'm, words like, um, I don't really like it yep. are, are always kind of trigger words for me. Uh, I always want to drill a little bit further into what it is that they don't like. And, you know, do they have a pattern of jump and ship every 18 months? Cause yep. sometimes that's the case where, you know, they'll, they'll go while it's new and shiny and then they see something, you know, they don't, the font's too small or the pews aren't comfortable, whatever it is. <laughs> On the other hand, there are often, I think, legitimate reasons to say, you know what, um, this isn't a good fit for my family. That don't have anything to do with scandal or misappropriation of funds. Um, I'm in maybe an unpopular position as a pastor that I'll say, yeah, I think sometimes it's completely okay and understandable for you to say, you know what, this was a, this was great for a season, mm-hmm. and um, for whatever reason, it's, it isn't uh, what I think our family needs right now. And even... What our family needs is a phrase that uh, is layered with all sorts of issues and problems. I think of you know my my mom who's attended the same church um, since I was like seven. Wow! Somebody somebody was asking her um, how she still went there. You know, through all the changes of you know twenty nine years or whatever. And uh, somebody said, "Colette, how, how do you still go there?" And she said, "Go there." That's my family. You don't go oh. to family. You are family. And I remember thinking, man, that's so wise. I like really appreciate it because she's gone through some highs and lows yes. where there were plenty of her peers who said, uh, you know, no harm, no foul, but we're we're out. We're we're finding something else. And I think this this guy here really boils it down to two words, community and sacrifice, which I think are pretty fascinating ways to distill that question down. It comes yep. down to community and sacrifice. I don't know. Do you do you agree with his uh his conclusion, his thesis here? I do. Um the community one is one that we talk about a lot at our church, right? You and I both serve at churches where the commu- the word community is in the name. Right, right. Um, and we talk about community a lot. He makes it – he does an interesting thing with us. He, he says that community is like a you – know, obviously the word unity is in it around a mission. Right. Uh, and around like we're – what exactly what your mom said too, like we're a family. Right. And that it's a bad sign when it becomes like uh, it becomes about personal preference. And I think community and sacrifice are two good ones because actually mm. sacrifice, you're saying, I'm willing to sacrifice my own preferences right. for the greater good of the mission, that we're all trying to make disciples. We're all trying to go in a general direction. And it's interesting. Again, I said this before, but uh, Four Corners Community Church, where I pastor, we started it nine years ago. So I was there at day one. Yeah. And... um there no, there wasn't a lot of this preference stuff because you're a new church and you're all oh, like, interesting. it is so clear cut what you're trying to accomplish. Mm. Like we're trying to accomplish a existing in a year, right? right. <laughs> but B, we have this burning desire to make mm. a difference in our community. Yep. And what's really interesting now that the church is nine years old is those things just, they don't go away. They just get muddled a little bit. Mm. Like people start to lose a little bit of sight. Myself included, use a little bit of sight of the mission, 
little personal preferences come in a little more. And I believe the struggle as churches get older is to try to reorient people around the stuff that we are really being called to do. Yeah, Max Lucado talks about it, like taking a, um, a caravan of people up to, up to the top of a mountain. Mm-hmm. And he, he, you know, he just writes, so I think Master, yes, he, he talks does. about when, when the summit is clear and everyone sees where they're going, there's unity and there's camaraderie and there's energy. He says, but when, when the fog covers the top of that mountain, that's when people start to look inwardly. That's when grumbling kind of begins. And he says, that's the role of, of the leader, of the pastor, of the shepherd, to, to perpetually be clearing the fog from the mountaintop, saying, mm. let's not forget, that's where we're going. Because when that gets clouded, our natural inclination then is to start to look at all that. I don't really like the way this parking lot is laid out. This yes. music is kind of loud. Like, it's easy to fall into that. Again, not saying that some of those aren't totally valid. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think it's, it's completely valid to say, I mean, my kids just aren't connecting. And yeah. as an adult, I can connect almost anywhere, but it's really important to me that my kids feel invested Absolutely. in or that it's a good fit for them, you know, and... I think sometimes families that are looking for things that are a good fit sometimes get chastised by the church, like, oh, no, you just got to gotta double down and sacrifice, which is sometimes absolutely the case. Sometimes we're, we can be so flippant that we're always hopping to the next thing that, you know, yep. piques our interest. But I, I think it's okay to say, yeah, for this next season, maybe this isn't the right this isn't the right community for us. So we chastise people who are leaving our churches for those reasons. We don't tend to chastise the ones coming to right, our churches right. for those reasons. I have sent people back, to be have honest. You, I you're have you? You're a better pastor than me. <laughs> you are a better pastor than me. What did that go? What did that look like? Well, it just became really clear early on that this person had an axe to grind against this this previous church. And Interesting. I, and I said, at the very least, I think you need there's some healing that needs to happen there first. Interesting. And. Uh, I would. I mean, I would love if you found a home here, um, but not until you like dealt with like the very obvious rift that's not been dealt with there. And this, I don't think this person could believe the words coming out of my mouth, to yeah. be honest. But which is great wisdom on your part, because something I learned after all these years when you start a new church, people they'll come to your church off of other ones, right? But tends to the ones who come from other ones in bad ways are going to leave yours in a bad way eventually, right? Uh, I like your Mexicano thing about the fog and stuff. Cause I'm not sure I've done the best job at that of helping mm. keep people, their minds, their eyes set on the mission. And it is I can, literally, as you said it, I, I was like, yeah, that is exactly what happens with some people. They all of a sudden go, all right, I don't see where we're going. Why do we do that? And why Hold, do we do that? Yes. things they ignored for the first five years? Because totally. that wasn't big deal. Now it's like, Oh, it does kind of annoy me that the that the coffee's no good it's or right. that, <laughs> right. you know, this happens or even bigger stuff. That's really interesting. I, I'm, I can resonate with that. It's one of the things I think Dave and John Ferguson have done masterfully for 30 years because, you know, and they both have told me, you know, once once you get to the point where you're sick of saying something is when everyone else starts to get it. Yep. Like this idea of like crystal clarity repeated regularly. When you're the one saying it, you can feel like a broken record. But their commitment for 30 years to the mission of helping people find their way back to God. Like yep. crystal cl- Like we mentioned that six times in every service and sometimes I'm sure for people on staff, they're like, holy cow, we get it already. But you have to remember, one, there's always new people. There's always yep. someone brand new sitting in your seats. And two, just because they're there doesn't mean that it's like clicked. And I just think they've done a great job of like not allowing themselves to let the fog cover up the, the mountaintop. To yeah. keep that, that focus, like this is where we're going. This is what we're about. And if it doesn't point us there, if it doesn't move us there, then we, don't, we just don't do it. That's good. If you're thinking about moving churches or you're the type of person who's, who's hung up on preferences, just – a word of caution, you know, make sure you're leaving a place or going to a place for the right reason. 
And remember what we always love to say on this show, that church is not about a place that you go. It's about a family that you belong to. And we all pray that you find that family. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Coming up next, we're going to talk about Pastor John MacArthur celebrating 50 years at his church. Quite the accomplishment, 50 years. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined again by Ian Simpkins on yet another Monday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, Enjoying it. These are the days we always tell people as pastors, these are the tough ones, the Mondays. (laughs) Get a case of the Mondays. Uh, I think pastors hit Mondays maybe harder than anybody else in the workplace. Yes. Other than elementary school kids. That's true. That's a good point. Touche. Touche. My kids are always like, is it snowing today? No, no. You're going to school on Monday. You're going to school. Speaking of pastors... Uh, there is a well-known pastor out of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, by the name of John MacArthur. I've heard of him. Yes, I think most of you have. He is a prolific writer, radio uh, personality. I believe he has a show on this station. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and a, a preacher, uh, he's kind of a pastor to pastors in, in certain tribes in the evangelical world. And John MacArthur had a special anniversary this weekend. He had his 50th anniversary at his church. Wow. Same church. Same church. 50th anniversary service as senior pastor of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. Uh, And the article says this on the Gospel Coalition. He has endured much and seen even more in his years at Grace. He is indeed a man whom God has granted faithful endurance. I really hope I get to the end of my pastoral ministry (laughs) and the the word faithful endurance is used. Because regardless of what you believe about MacArthur, and, you know, MacArthur is a very polarizing figure. Yep. Um, 50 years at one church is, is something. Yeah. At, at my last church, there was, um, a man named, uh, Daryl Malcolm, who, uh, he's been in ministry now, I think 64 years, 65 years, something wow. like that. And not all at the same church, but his wisdom and steadfastness was like, I don't even think I realized like what a gift he was to me and to our team. And mm. we obviously, we disagreed on stuff. I'm sure we got under each other's skin, but like the wisdom of somebody who had f- like faithfully done one, like followed the vocational passion of his heart, um, and, a, and a family that like rallied around him, and they didn't always agree with him. But like his insight and wisdom, having seen what he saw, like I remember even mm. you know my first year as lead pastor, um, there were like a couple of things that really really rattled my cage, and I would and I would go to him just all fired up, and he would sort of calmly say, "Yeah, welcome to ministry." That, <laughs> that sort of that's par for the course, man. And like he had the perspective and the authority to say that because he'd seen some stuff. And I don't know. I, I could not have asked for a, a better That's great. friend in that regard because he helped me see through the cloud of what was right now to like five years from now. I think having someone like that always cast vision for the long game and always speaking that into me was like just uh, invaluable. Kelly Brady, who filled in for you while, while you were out uh, when you guys had your baby. Yeah. Uh, he has served that role in my life, and I'll never forget. Uh, a couple years ago, I called him, and I was like, "Man, this is what's going on, and this and this." And he just started laughing. I was like, <laughs> "Okay, it's always what you want from a mentor, yep, right?" Yep. I'm like, "I'm like, what's okay? What What do you think? What is so funny?" He goes, "Man, welcome to pastoral ministry." He's like, "You started yeah. a church, so it was kind of a honeymoon period. Right. Now, just you know, welcome." And it was like, "Oh, that, that was both <laughs> encouraging and discouraging." Yeah, at no the same kidding. time, it was just kind of like. Okay. All right. Well, here we go. And MacArthur was asked about pastoral burnout. Mm. Uh, and 
how do you talk to young ministers? I mean, 50 years, you got to feel you, that roller coaster is going to be a lot of highs and a lot of lows. Yeah. And in a classic MacArthur way, he says, the idea that you're going to leave the ministry out of disappointment or burnout is a failure to understand that it was never about you. <laughs> wow. And so how do you, I'm curious for you, how do you just keep going? You know, <laughs> the, how do you stay on the roller coaster? Because ministry, I know all jobs are roller coasters. Yeah. But pastoral work is a unique roller coaster. There's yeah. the week to week of what people thought about what you said that week. But there's also there, you know, a, being a family, a church being a family, everybody comes with expectations that doesn't happen at other jobs. And right. They want to tell you their expectations and there's high highs, low lows. How have you ridden this out to this point in your life? Yeah, man, that's a, that's a great question. I, one of the, I was, I'm thinking about my car. My, uh, my car was hit while parked in front of my house uh, the day after we, we brought our son home from the hospital. Um, and I've been thinking about my car when it gets smashed up. It's obvious that I have to take it in for repairs, right? Mm, like, okay. Yep. The, the bumper smashed and the taillights all hanging off. I'm like, okay, I, clearly it's obvious. It's visible. It's external. Um, but then I think about like an oil change is not a disaster. It's, I set that up every three to 5,000 miles. I'm going to get an oil change because I want to do that before there's a disaster, before there's some like really obvious glaring. Mm. And I think in ministry and marriage and vocation profession, just life in general, like setting up a preemptive, like oil changes, these like health good. checkups is so important. Don't wait until you're like hours from burnout or hours from walking away from your marriage or whatever it is, like put in parameters. So for me, you know, a couple of things that have been like deeply ingrained in my heart from an early age was the importance of Sabbath and rest, which mm-hmm. I don't do well. I'll just say that outright, but like, f- like asking the question, what stirs my affections for God? That's a question that's always really helped me because sometimes it, that answer sounds really churchy, but other times it looks like going for a bike ride to be yeah. honest, or like playing music like that. Stir or having like a good meal with great friends, like what stirs my affections for God? So, like making sure to take time to actually hit pause to find Sabbath, but to also surround myself with people who uh, uh, usually look for two qualities one that I know that uh, love me, and two that aren't cowards. Mm. Because if they're only one or the other, you know, there are plenty of people that will love you, but they won't actually tell you the hard truth about yourself, yep. and you'll, they'll allow you to keep perpetuating things that are toxic. Or they're not cowards, and they'll like tell you the truth, but you don't have any sense that they love you. Yes. And so they just hit you like, like a that hammer. That was no fun, <laughs> right, right? And it's hard to like receive, you know, love and coaching and affection from a person like that. And yep. I think just being intentional about regular rhythms of rest and being really mindful about the people I surround myself with have been so helpful for me. Those are good words, man. Like I've said multiple times now, I had sabbatical this summer, and a lot right. of that was just getting away from the expectations of ministry, not even the expectations of other people, but that I put on myself, like kind of my identity. Yeah, My right. identity is formed in who I am as a pastor right. as opposed to who I, who I am as a child of God. Right. And that goes for all of you out there. Your identity is not that you're a plumber or teacher or even a parent or a spouse. Your identity is uh, who you are in Christ. And, and the more we can lean into that and love that aspect of our lives— I think then you begin you begin to not be identified by the number of people in my church or what people are saying about my sermon or yeah or the good work you do as a plumber whatever else it might be. But to me, honestly, I think that's at the core of Sabbath too. People, I think, sometimes incorrectly talk about Sabbath solely as like physical, spiritual, emotional rest, yep. which it is. But I think at its core, it is this like declaration, it's this mini rebellion that I'm not actually the center of the universe, mm. and that's really really good news. And when I'm always working. I would, you know, neither of us would ever say, I, Brian Fromm, am center of the universe. But yep. I think when we're just always going, 
what starts to kind of take root in our heart is that yeah, this this church really does need me though yep. to be on all the time. Your identity starts to get wrapped up in these things, and I think. Man, seeing Sabbath and rest as like rebellion, as resistance, has been so helpful for me because mm. it's not just this passive. Oh, I had a t- I had a really tiring week. I need to rest a little bit. You're like, no, 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 no. This is a way of saying I'm not the sum of my accomplishments. I'm not. My value isn't wrapped up in just what I can do, but as a child of God. And that that's embarrassing to admit, but as pastors, that's really easy to forget sometimes. It really is. I think hobbies are important too. Yeah. What makes John MacArthur interesting is that I think I think theology is his hobby. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And so sometimes you can read his life and be like, you're just always on, always. I just think that's his mm. hobby. But for most of us, you know, it's not feeling guilty about getting out to the golf course right. or going for a bike ride or yep. playing with my kids and going, you know what? Life will keep going. The church will keep going. Christ is in charge. Uh, and I can rest in that. And then I think you can go long term. Yeah. Totally. Which is the goal, really, at the end of the day. It is. Well, coming up next on The Common Good, what do we like to say? We're going to land this plane. You like to say that. We're going to pull this boat into dock. No one says that. We're going to take this train into the station. I don't like where any of this is going. With just some craziness that we found on the internet today. This is The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or online at 1160hope.com. My name is Brian Fromm, joined by Ian Simpkins. That crazy music can only mean one thing, my man. What does it mean? It means we're about to go home. <laughs> <laughs> it means Monday is about over. Any big plans tonight? I know we always joke now that you have a newborn. Big plans consist of like hoping that baby will sleep. But... Well, we, we have uh, Monday evening services. I don't know that we've talked about that very often oh, here. Oh, that's but right. We, you know, a lot of churches historically have had a Saturday evening service. And we found that like a lot of people work weekend jobs, so yeah. we introduced a Monday evening service. It's dinner at five thirty, and then a six thirty service, and then we make the whole building available for small groups right after that service. So people with like young kids and stuff lo- love it because they have like a meal with their with their family, and then we have like a kid city thing for kids, and then we have childcare available for small groups. And wow, it's been it's been awesome. It's so been you, a blast. How do you enjoy it? Because we've joked about how on Sundays, we'll all, after Sunday services, we're pretty tired on Mondays as pastors. So how is that rhythm for you on a Monday? You know what? For me, uh, one, I'm a sucker for food. Okay. And I love sharing food with people. So like on a Sunday, you, I mean, you get this, churches of every size, people usually come like running in. Yep. And then they're running out of the building right afterwards. And because we have this meal ahead of time, it is a great opportunity. This may be selfishly motivated for me just to like spend time with people that I don't normally get a chance to, and I, I am loving that part of it. That's awesome. there's, like, no agenda. It's just like, oh, let's just have a meal together, and then we all go to service together. So we didn't need to talk about this in the segment earlier about what what happens when you hate your church. Like, this yeah. is, no, you're good with this. This I, is good. I, yeah, it's it's a blast. And we've done it, you know, we that's the nice thing with multi-site, too, is we have, you know, musicians that have come in to help us fill in gaps and stuff. Sometimes Mondays can be hard for people, but, yeah, it's it's been a riot. Well, that's awesome. Well, we like to close every show. Uh, just with, what's the phrase you use? Interweb insanity. I like it. We're going to go interweb insanity today. Just <laughs> funny things we found on the internet just to make us laugh, to kind of pop the balloon a little bit and give us some laughs. Why don't you go first? Well, uh, this first story has to do with my beloved Aldi. I don't know if you're an Aldi guy I or not. I do like Aldi, although I always forget the quarter for the for the cart. Oh, you can't forget the quarter. Just keep a quarter in your car, I Brian. I do, but then I use it on a gumball. <laughs> 
Okay, we need to talk about that later. Oh, I have a gumball obsession. We'll get into that someday. Wow, I, I want to talk about that right now. If anybody out there wants to get me a gift, gumballs will be no high kidding. on the list. Yes. That's the lowest on the on oh. my list, possibly be. All right. Gumball. So it's uh, Aldi, and the headline reads, Def Leppard and Guns N' Roses-themed cheeses set for Aldi store shelves. L- please let me keep going. <laughs> Supermarket chain Aldi set to launch range of cheeses based on classic tracks, including... Pour some Gouda on me <laughs> and sweet cheddar of mine. <laughs> that makes me so happy on so many levels. I love Aldi. I love cheese. And I love a good pun. What well, I feel like there should be a big sign above those as well. You know what it should say? Oh, gosh. Welcome to the jungle. Oh, boy. Should say welcome to the jungle. <laughs> Why don't we move on? All right. This one is, uh, this one made me laugh. Memories made of this USB stick found in frozen seal poop. Oh, boy. Frozen seal poop. So this is out of New Zealand. Scientists in New Zealand say they found a USB memory stick containing holiday photos inside a frozen seat lab of seal poop. That is awesome. These people went on vacation in New Zealand, and they, you know they looked everywhere for their memory stick, their USB stick. They couldn't <laughs> find it anywhere. And now, you know, months, year, however long later, these, they're going to call from a scientist being like, were you in New Zealand? We think we found your USB stick. <laughs> Gosh. You'll never believe where we found it. Are you allowed to say that on the radio, by the way? I mean, you just did. New so. Zealand? I can yeah, say New Zealand. New Zealand is not on, the, uh, <laughs> not on the restricted list. Yep. Okay, so this this one's for your beloved New Jersey. Yes. Which it doesn't speak poorly to New Jersey, so you can, you can brace yourself. Okay, so uh, Pennsylvania landfills are making New Jersey smell, quote, like a rotten egg, residents say. So that's... That's really the whole story. <laughs> but enough people are walking out of their house smelling the same thing. Like, is that is that rotten egg? And apparently, like, how big of a landfill would that have to be to have that kind of impact? It's, it happens. New Jersey. It ha- that's a regular thing? New Jersey gets its, uh, I think it's a bad rap because it's one of the most beautiful places. I love it to death. Uh, grew up there. But there are pockets of New Jersey. Really? Uh, that, that get stuff from New York, get stuff from Pennsylvania that that oh. give it its reputation. Or New Jersey. Not where I grew up, but <laughs> it will get it. All right, Canada. Uh, no, I'm going to Florida. I'm okay. going to Florida. Go ahead. Because we always have to get a Florida story Obviously. here. Man allegedly tried to run over son with pickup truck because his son wouldn't take a bath. <laughs> well, that'll get the message across. A Florida man has been arrested on suspicion of attempting to run over his son because the child had refused to take a bath. Joseph Riley, 45, was arrested after the uh, officers received a call about a car driving down the road at a high speed. Again, this isn't funny, but we've all been there trying to get our kids to take a bath. <laughs> I thought you were say we've all been there trying to run our children no, over with like, a truck. We've all been like, just take a bath. I got an argument with my son the other night about taking a shower after he'd been dripping sweat from basketball <laughs> practice. Just Your take a shower. Son. You'll sleep better, man. Okay, so my oldest is only 15 months, and he loves bath time. Do they yeah. outgrow that? Oh, that- oh, yes. So this isn't like a good sign that he loves it now? Because no. he he loves baths. Oh, enjoy it while you can, right. man. At that age, you can still bathe them in the sink and stuff. <laughs> it's true. You are going to lose that, believe me. All right, so here's one out of Canada, and I feel bad for laughing. I'm going to laugh anyway. Says, woman's obituary gets the last laugh with cre- cremation joke. Quote, I finally have the smoking hot body I o- I've always wanted. <laughs> but it's dead. Oh, that is Canada through and through. I've always, I finally have the smoking hot body I've always wanted. That's the kind of joke that someone in my family would make. Like, that, that's going to show up at some point in the next 50 years in my family life. People get uncomfortable when they go with the jokes in the obituary, but I always appreciate that. I, I kind of do too. I'm not going to, it's your, I mean, it's your obituary. Might as well. 
Go for it. Finally lost some weight, right? Something like that. Oh, boy. Oh, gosh. There we go. Pennsylvania. Man ticketed for public drunkenness during Skate with a Cop event. Some officers had to take a break from the fun Thursday night to ticket a man from Wilkes-Barre. He admitted to police he had been drinking before the Skate with a Cop event after other skaters complained about him. I love this because we've all been roller skating, uh, right? You used to go roller skating growing up? I mean, yeah, sort of. So roller skating, and there's always that guy trying to weave in and out, and he's doing it at a skating event with cops, and it turns out that he's drunk. It's just, you can't make that stuff up. (laughs) That's too bad. It's good. Okay, here's one out of New York. It says, man looking to unload 20 oxy pills accidentally texts cop. (laughs) According to Lieutenant William Mayle of the Rotterdam Police Department, uh, he inadvertently reached out to a detective whose number he had from, quote, prior dealings with law enforcement. The detective arranged to meet him at a Taco Bell eatery, obviously. I just uh, love that it's called clearly. a Taco Bell eatery yes. where the alleged perp uh, showed up looking to make a deal. I don't know. <laughs> it's good. Our humor's dark sometimes. It really does good. get a little dark, but this poor guy, I mean. Kind of want some Taco Bell now. Kind of had a comment. Yeah, no kidding. Last one. My last one out of California. This is a, a, war, a heartwarming one. Okay. A uh, man wakes from six-week coma, celebrates Christmas in February. Uh, the guy went. To, the guy got into a coma from a sickness. It was a surprise thing. They're calling it a miracle that he woke up after he went to the hospital. Flu-like symptoms on December the tenth. He recently woke up after being septic, placed in intensive care. He was there in a coma for six weeks. He woke up and his family celebrated Christmas. See, and the thing about that story is there are people who probably still have their Christmas decorations up right now who weren't in comas. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably someone listening right now is like, oh, yeah, i got to take my lights down. Yes, but I hate those people. Do you? <laughs> yes. Tell us how you really feel, Brian. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I love you if that's you out right, there. good recovery. But generally speaking, <laughs> those are the people I dislike. Well, Ian, we finished Monday. This has been a fun day with you, man. Another fun day. You did it. Uh, This is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. We hope you'll join us tomorrow on Tuesday. Until then, you can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or online at 1160hope.com. Have a great Monday evening, Chicagoland. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.